You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to the Radioactive Show, produced on unceded Wurundjeri lands at my home in Nam, Melbourne. My name is AC. In today's show, highlighting the Black Lives Matter movement, I'm sharing interviews and statements from family members of First Nations people who have died in custody. First Nations people are warned that this show includes discussion of racist police violence and murder, and it's okay to turn off if you need to. If this content is triggering for anyone and you need someone to talk to, please contact Lifeline on 131114. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody was released in 1987, 432 Aboriginal people have been killed while in police custody in Australia. Latoya Aroha Rule's brother, Wayne Feller Morrison, died in 2016. She spoke with Marissa Spacero, on 3CR's Doing Time show in April. First of all, could you just introduce yourself and tell us what land you're from and also what land your brother was from? Yep, so um, I've lived on... Oh, sorry, my name's Latoya Harul. <laughs> I'm a Rajarian Māori um, person who's lived on Ghana land my entire life now. Um, my brother's Rajri Kukutu and Wiringu, my family from the far west coast um, of, of the place now known as South Australia. Um, and, yeah, he passed away in Yatla Prison um, on the 26th of September 2016. And so it's been, you know, coming up in this September to four years um, since his passing um, and uh, nearly two years since this coroner's court's been going on um, surrounding his death. And he died in the Royal Adelaide Hospital, didn't he? He did, yeah. Yeah, um, he was on life support, um, obviously, he uh, after the incident, people may have seen on the news of um, him being quote unquote restrained by corrections officers in South Australia's prison, Yatla Prison. Um, he was taken to the Royal Adelaide Hospital and was there for almost three days on life support, but never regained consciousness. And yeah, we turned off his machine in the morning at three forty a.m. We, we we never will know what actually happened because it appears that, you know, the guards were were trying to give him some sort of resuscitation. I'd like to know why an ambulance wasn't called. Yeah, that's an incredible point to make. Um, you know, obviously prison health um, is is apparent in the prison, like they have access to um, those services. It's not as if, you know, it it wasn't a possibility. Um, And their own practices of resuscitation are clearly, um, were clearly not good enough. He was, you know, dead essentially for 50 minutes um, before they were able to, um, I guess, keep him breathing or resuscitate him. But, 
I mean, that raises a lot of questions for me, if I'm honest, um, towards if he if he was actually alive or if it was a machine during the final moments of his life actually keeping him looking and appearing um, as if he was alive, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, being with him in that space, yeah, it, it wasn't the same. It didn't. It didn't feel like he was there at all. Um, and I mean, if somebody's, you know, clinically dead for fifty minutes, there's no coming back from that. And we know that he never did. That's exactly right, Latoya. And, and, and in fact, it appears that from the scanty information that we've been given, that there there appeared to have been some type of incident um, that happened while he was being transported in the van. I think what I find um, quite strange is the fact that there was awareness among prison guards of the positional asphyxia. Um, and so that listeners are aware, Latoya, perhaps we should explain it, shouldn't we, that as a, this, this particular term, that positional mm-hmm. asphyxia, and it's spelled A-S-P-H-Y-X-I-A for people that don't, aren't familiar with the medical terms, And it's a situation that occurs where a person is restrained in a way that leaves them unable to breathe. And it's a key issue in the currently suspended New South Wales inquest into the death of um, of David Dungai. And you'd be familiar with David Dungai where he died in a similar way. Yeah, that's David Dungai. Um, Dungai, sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Um, Yeah, David um, is the son of Latona Dungai. Um, and that family is a really staunch family in New South Wales fighting this case. And David was in his cell um, eating biscuits. So it was, to my knowledge, he was diabetic. He was asked to stop. Uh, he refused to stop eating a biscuit, to my knowledge. And essentially, um, he was suffocated by a few guards who pinned him down. And he was saying, I can't breathe, very similar to what we know in this in the States with a lot of the um, black deaths there that are raised by black death in custody, you know, this common element of I can't breathe. And the correction said to him, if you can talk, you can breathe. Um, exactly. I mean, he died. He died, you know, and his last words were asking for assistance and for help. Um, That's right. You know, there's clear parts of these cases where, um, yeah, in our, in our family members' final moments, they're actually asking for help. And for my brother's life, you know, I will never know what was, you know, what were his final words. Um, But I can tell you now that he submitted throughout the course of his time in lead up to the incident, um, you know, medical forms that were never processed. We've heard evidence so far about that. Um, And, you know, he was asking for help. There's footage of him that I've seen that won't be released to the public of, you know, really, really sad and depressing moments of some of his final moments um, with, you know, a blanket over his head rocking back and forth. This was a day before the incident happened. Now, that tells me that, you know, he needed help. And majority of the people who pass in custody, you know, moments before they do so, they actually just need assistance and proper medical care um, and proper human care, and it's inhumane treatment that's been provided to them instead. Um, and yeah, that's the outcome. 
of what happened. Very inhumane, and and the reason why I mentioned I I mentioned David, I wasn't trying to compare. I was just trying to you know let you know talk about the fact that not only were they similar, but also that there was a quote from one of the guards here in an NITV article um, from September 2018 where the guard actually says, oh, well, this is in relation to your brother, where the guard says, oh, we deal with these situations from time to time and we're not sure whether they're faking it, he said. Yeah. Um, firstly, no, I think we have to draw a comparison, so thank you for doing oh. so. Like, I think that... Um, isolating any Aboriginal, yeah, isolating any Aboriginal death in custody away from some, you know, away away from the truth behind the systemic injustice that's occurring, um, is is not the way to go. You know, we have to be drawing comparisons because this is a structured and organised crime that's going on against Aboriginal peoples and has been doing so since colonisation. So they definitely are related. Um, and yeah, this idea of faking it. I mean, you know that I've done my own research in academia yep. at university around yep. this idea of... Um, I actually looked at the case of Miss Jew in, in Western Australia who passed away in 2014 and thinking about, you know, how she was treated and this idea that, yeah, Aboriginal people are not honest and not truthful about, you know, the things that are happening to us, yet when we pass away, we're blamed. We are blamed for our own death. Um, we are blamed for, you know, these underlying discourses that are inherently criminal, that are inherently, you know, criminalise Aboriginal people. And so, you know, as an Aboriginal person walking down the street, we're automatically targeted as being untrustworthy, as being dishonest, as, um, yeah, hiding, hiding things that are not true. Um, and that all relates back also to, you know, cultural aspects that the coloniser cannot penetrate. I mean, the unknown information that they so desperately want to know about Aboriginal people. And so, yeah, it'll, it's very systemic, it's very racist. Um, and the idea that somebody could be fighting for life and crying out for help, which, are, you know, majority of the cases of Aboriginal deaths in custody, you know, those individuals have done at the time of their death and that being seen as a lie. That was Latoya Aroha Rule speaking with Marissa Spasiro from 3CR's Doing Time Show. I'm AC, and you're listening to The Radioactive Show. Today's show is about black deaths in custody. Next, we hear an interview between Shante Walker and Robbie Thorpe from The Black and Deadly Show in January. Shante Walker's sister, Veronica Nelson Walker, died in custody on January 2nd of this year. I've got a very special guest on the line right at this moment. You know, people will be aware that we've had a, recently had a death in custody in our community in, in um, Collingwood here, and um, I've got the, her sister Shantae on the line, and uh, she's going to tell us a little bit about um, Veronica and her life and um, the effects it has on her family, our community, and, and all those things. Are you, are you there, Shantae? Hey Robbie. Hi. Good morning, sis. Thanks for coming on. Sorry Thank that you. sorry for Thanks all that for sorry me. business. Yeah, I know it's it's horrific. You know, we're down in Mornin. It's terrible. And terrible you're, you're ringing from up in Cumra Gunja way there? So, are you in Cumra? Yeah, I'm up in Narandra, a couple Narandra, of hours from okay. Cumra. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's when it, like where all our mob is, where Veronica's Uncle Rusty's crew are, their father's crew are. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. You know, no Rusty and, and Barney and all those crew there, beautiful people, you know, walk a mob. I know. And, you know it's so sad crew. to lose any of our members of our family. It affects us all. You know, we're all, we're all close to our it, people. That's that's what I mean. We like we've lost her. We've like no one's accountable. No one's uh, answered any of our questions when they went to the coroners. He more or less. We've been told that three months time for everything, her autopsy, everything. They didn't give us any answers. They wouldn't even tell us what's going on. The information that we've received are from the sisters in jail. Yes, and it was pretty horrific for them as well. To, to hit, I know. They heard and what, what went on in those cells at the time, and you know, yeah, there's no, what's the you know, what's the story on how come she was just left there like she was? Well, well, well. What what's occurred is that um, she's gone into jail and she applied for bail on the Monday, and there was no one there to represent her. Aboriginal Legal Service didn't represent her. Mm. She represented herself. Yeah. And and they, they haven't given her bail, so she's gone back in. Now, they've noticed that um, she's sick, like she's sick, so they take her, she asks for medical, so they take her up to medical, and she says, like, I'm really sick at the moment. Um, would you be able to give me something so that, um, like, my body can relax because she was really ill? Yeah. And um, what they've said to her is, no, well, Veronica's got really upset with that, and what we've been told is that the screws that were at the corrections officers that were at the jail... Dragged her back to her cell. Just when they dragged her back her. to their cell, yeah. screaming, yeah. All the girls in every, everyone's heard everything. Ronica's in there mm. screaming, asking for help, and no one's helped her. Now they checked her at four a.m. in the morning, and then when they went back at eight, like she was gone already. Oh, she was already gone. Yeah, and, and it's so and horrendous. I, I know. Where's the care for our mob? I'm like. Like I, I, you mentioned um, earlier when we were speaking about the, the, uh, the Royal Commission into Deaths in Custody com- recommendations, was it almost 400 recommendations? That's right. And, and well, 300, the, in 87 when they, done the re- when they put that report together, it was over a 10-year period, Rob. Yes. Those recommendations that were put into play, that should have been put into play, there's, I think there's like 26, but you'll have to excuse me on the number. I know it's 20-something when I last read it, recommendations were actually put, have been put out. All them other recommendations that would help our people in jail, you know, so that when they're getting incarcerated, they're coming out alive, you know. The, that The 339 recommendations that should have been put into place have never, ever. There's been 20-something, but they're not saving our people. There's been another 400 deaths. Yes. Like 400 of our people have died because... They refuse to put recommendations in, and some of them are like little recommendations. This is since, since the recommendations don't even cost any money. This is since the well, Royal Commission. Those four hundred deaths, and it's you know hasn't stopped at all, has it? No. Nah. And, and yet that was a very expensive um, Royal Commission that took a long time, and at the end of the day, did nothing. And like a lot of other no, Royal Commissions, youth detention, yes. you name it. You know, they're, they're just just a waste of time. There's warehouses full of Royal Royal Commissions. Gathering dust in this country, they never get acted on. That's the problem. Them, them recommendation, them that the inquiry that was put in the black death in custody. If them, if them recommendations were put in place, my sister wouldn't have passed away on the second of January. I reckon you're right. She'd be in jail. You know, like she'd be here. 
chaired their stay and that she's like she stole something. She died for a bit of clothing. Like what about what are our lives worth in Australia? What are Aboriginal people's lives worth? Because if it, if we're not worth a t-shirt, you know what do we what do we say to the Australian public? What do we what are we saying in our communities that when Aboriginal people are worth nothing? That's right, sis. We're dying in jails over parking tickets and un- lousy little fines. And you know, people are not looking at the Holocaust that Aboriginal people survived in this country. You know, the, the years of uh, um, colonised uh, refugees that we are in, in, in their reserves. They destituted our people, made us welfare dependent. And you know, exactly. and the way that they're treating our people today, you know, it's still part of that crime. They're, they're deliberately you know, committing we, these crimes against us. But deliberately, like this is a genocide. This is not this. This has never gone away. They've committed a genocide on our people, and all the inquiries that they've done to try and stop it, they don't put them into play. So this genocide that has happened since colonisation discontinues. It's like a cycle. They talk about black fellas being dysfunctional and welfare dependent. They've put us in this cycle. They don't ever. They don't want to remove us from that cycle because of how powerful we will be. Yes, that's but right. At, 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 in that cycle, we're dying. Our kids are dying. Our, our brothers and sisters, our mums—they're taking people out of the, our community that we need. That was Shantae Walker speaking with Robbie Thorpe from Three CR's Black and Deadly show. Last year in November, Kumanjai Walker was killed in the remote community of Yundamu. A police officer is now awaiting trial for his murder. A solidarity rally was held in Nam, Melbourne last year, and statements from elders and community members in Yundamu were read by family members based on Kulin lands. In community, my name is Nungarai. I'm going to read out a statement from Mali Wells Napaknari. She's a Walpuri woman. When I first heard what had happened, I immediately felt outraged and betrayed, but most of all, I felt sad. We came on Sunday morning to stand together in our grief and were presented with smirking police officers and no answers. Two mounted police attempted to bring their horses closer, an intimidation tactic. Someone requested them to leave and I heard one of the officers say, if you had any respect for the horse's life, you would stop waving that cardboard in its face. He doesn't like it. You're intimidating him. How dare someone who works for an organisation that attacks and creates and causes harm and kills people try to tell a peaceful protester they are intimidating? If you had any respect for human beings, if you had any respect for the traditional owners of this land, if you had any respect at all, you would be questioning the systems in place, the systems you benefit from, the systems that keep Aboriginal people down. I work in a school. We encourage all of our children to be strong and to be smart and to be proud of who they are and where they come from. But, we are, ju- but are we just raising them to be disappointed and betrayed? I don't want to live in a world where we have to ask if our nieces and nephews will be next, our brothers and sisters. What has happened in Yindamu is an outrage, an injustice, and an event that we must not allow to be swept under the rug. I don't know how to trust the systems that have been set up for us to fail. We are hurt, we are angry, we are suffering. We stay, we stay strong and we stay together. 
but we should never again have to be connected by grief like this. Thank you for being here. I hope we never have to meet under these circumstances again. So those were words from Mali Wells Napangnadi, uh, and I'd also just like to reiterate that all of the statements we've received, they have passed on their thanks to Kulin Mob and to all the mob who have gathered here today, and I'd like to pay my respects for having us on your country. I have to say I'm a little overwhelmed and broken. I'm Emily Napurula Maloney, I'm Malcolm Jagamara's daughter, a lawman who taught me my songline, my jukoba. My family are grieving and broken, and I stand here on their behalf today. We're from Wilara, but our mob are also in Yundamu, Lajamanu, Papanya. My Auntie Janet wanted you to know that we paint our skin in grief. We scream, we cry, we wail, and this grief, it's sitting heavy. You have to be outraged. You have to stand and walk alongside us and not take this. This is not Australia. We're First Nation people. We've been here over 60,000 years. This is shameful. I want to thank Kulin Nations for having us and living on this land. And I'm, I'm blessed every day to walk on this country. We're Walpuri. We're Yapa. We're going to stand with our head high and the truth is going to come out. Thank you. To all the people coming along to protest, I want to say thank you from my people. This is unreal. The intervention has a lot to do with this. It has set us right back. The last time Walpuri people were shot like this, 90 years ago, with Conestone massacre, we were hurting. There's no fairness honesty or respect. I want to I wanna say that um, the police need to get out of that community because they're not honouring our sorry business. Sorry business and our protocol, police aren't allowed into the community when there's sorry business going on. They shouldn't have gone in there and taken that man or taking that young boy, or even hurt him during sorry business time. That's against our protocol and against our culture, and they're going against our culture again by interrupting our another sorry business that they caused. We, they are walking around with rifles, and they're intimidating the Yundamu people right now while they're going through sorry business. And that's not on. This has got to change. This isn't breaking up community, tribal um, stuff. This has them involved. They're the ones that did this. They're the ones that are causing the intimidation and causing us to be scared when we're supposed to be hurting. Don't come into our country and say that we're not teaching you more when you more aren't listening to us. Thank you, Mob. Hey, thank you, Mob, for coming out. But I want to say my family are strong and they're culturally proud. 
And we won't stand for this. Draw the line here. Change your, change your law. I'm sick of, yep, we need the, we need the elders to be spoken for. They need to speak. They need to kick all the police officers out of Yundomu. Because they're scaring the people there and they're trying to grieve. They need to bring that commissioner down to meet with the elder, not in Yundamu, but outside. Cultural way. And then the elder can tell them when they can come in. That's our way. This is where we draw the line. We can't stand for this anymore. You can't treat us people like this anymore. A new mob standing here today to support my family, our family here. This is an honor. But we, right now, can I get everyone to pull out their phones? I want you to record this. Because this, when we don't have no weapons, this is our weapons. Because this is what them Yundomu people want. They want coverage. And you mob can help. The media stays silent. That's it. Let people know. Bring awareness to what's happened. We draw the line at killing our people. We don't feel safe. I'm walking around here looking at police shaking. We don't want to be scared. But you mob are making us scared. And right now you're making the Yundamu people scared by bringing your guns and intimidating them when they're grieving over a young boy. You need to get out of Yundamu right now and give them more time and space to grieve over their family member. Now, thank you, Mob, for coming out. My grandmother was born in Yundamu. She went to school from there. And I'm proud to say that I am a cultural person and nobody will take that away. And you, Mob, standing here. Thank you. That was Justin Wijani Jungarai speaking at a solidarity rally in Nam, Melbourne, following the death of Kumanjai Walker in November last year. I'm AC, and you've been listening to The Radioactive Show. If the content from this show has been triggering for anyone, and you need to speak to someone, please contact Lifeline on 131114. This show will be available from our podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash radioactive. The Radioactive Show is produced for 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, on Wurundjeri Country. The Radioactive Show would like to thank Ace Nuclear Free Collective at Friends of the Earth for financially supporting the show and the Community Radio Network for distributing it nationally. If you would like to get in touch with The Radioactive Show, you can call the 3CR station on 03 9419 8377. You can send us an email at radioactiveshow.3cr at gmail.com or you can go to our Facebook page. Thanks for listening 
And remember, there is no peace without justice. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminawaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.